If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open up to the book of Exodus chapter 10 uh, this morning. And I feel like somebody's playing a joke on me with my podium. Uh, we'll see if it doesn't fall over. Um, Exodus chapter 10, we are moving down the pathway of these plagues and these signs and wonders. Uh, I'm beginning to get several comments from people in the church uh, that just Pharaoh seems like a very hard-hearted man who just doesn't get it and who is stubborn. And my response to several of those people this past week is exactly uh, this idea that in the story of the plagues and in the story of the Exodus, we are the pharaohs. We, in the midst of that, are not meant to see us being the Hebrews. We're not even meant to see us being the acting agents of good, but rather in the story of the plays, we find ourselves mostly in the life of Pharaoh. And what we have today in chapter 10 is we have sort of a lesson in in humility and sort of reminding us as God is reminding Pharaoh about the posture of the Christian, of the posture of those who would claim to follow God. It reminded me of a story that I read uh, this past week where a Fortune 500 CEO was traveling out of town with his wife. And they were going to where the wife grew up. And so they go into the town and they pull over to a gas station because they needed to fill up. And so he begins to fill up the car and he goes inside to get a couple of things. And as he's inside the gas station, he looks out through the window and he sees that his wife is talking to the gas station attendant. And so he buys his things and he goes and gets in his car and they begin to drive off. And the husband of the Fortune 500 company says, who was that man that you were talking to for 10 to 15 minutes? And she said, well, that was my, uh, that was my high school sweetheart. I didn't know that he worked there, but that's who he was and we were catching up. And so the husband paused for just a moment and then he turns and he looks at his wife and he says, I bet you are so thankful that you didn't marry a gas station attendant and instead you married a Fortune 500 CEO. And the wife paused for a moment and she looked back at her husband and she says, no, actually, I was thinking that if I had married him, that he would be the Fortune 500 CEO and you would have ended up the gas station attendant. You know, humility comes in a variety of shapes and forms. And the Bible says that we are to humble ourselves or the warning in that process is that God will then humble us. And so we have really two choices of how to live our lives, to to be humble before him and to want to be used by him, or God will eventually, at some point within his perfect and right timing, he will be the one that humbles us. And so Pharaoh needs some humbling still. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, he says this when he got to the Exodus 10 and he stood before his people, he said, I want you to imagine and do this exercise with me. He said, just imagine just for a moment that Jesus stands over your shoulder as you sit. And he's got his uh, nail-pierced hands and his face is hardened and he's, he's resurrected, but there he was for all you to see what he's done. And he whispers in your ear as you come to Exodus 10, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long? And so we pick up in verse 1, where this is God's word for us. He says, then the Lord said to Moses... Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, 
that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I had done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So one of the questions that we've wrestled with over the past several weeks is why would God choose to deliver his people in such a peculiar way? Why not just free them from the bondage of, of Pharaoh and, and send them into the promised land? Why do you go about this methodical process and, and trying to bring about your good works and your purposes? Well, the Lord begins to answer those questions for us. He says, listen, at the end of verse one, that they may see these signs amongst them. That they may see that I'm sovereign and that I'm powerful and that I'm in control and that, that I have dominion over my creation and all that I have brought into existence, that I am the one that is in complete control. But secondly, notice what he says, that you may tell to your sons and your grandsons and your, grand, and your daughters and your granddaughters. But you may tell them about what it is that I did and, and my faithfulness and my power. And so I'm going to demonstrate that over a period of time and let you watch it and let you see so that you will testify to what it is that I did, God. But I want you to notice that puzzling phrase that we've wrestled with as well in verse 1 where he says, go into Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart. We see this throughout scripture that there are times where the scripture will say that the individual, the person or Pharaoh in particular, that he chose to harden his heart. And then there are moments where God comes in and he says, no, I will harden his heart and I will be sovereign over what he thinks and feels and, and what he does. And the reason is, is so that you will testify to what it is that I did and what it is that I've accomplished. But we need to be able to wrestle with this idea as maturing Christians, the idea of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And oftentimes I, I think there's a pushback from some well-meaning Christians on the idea that God is sovereign because it makes me forfeit in some way my own responsibility. And then there are some that would say it all depends upon me and that we end up minimizing the sovereignty of God and the authority of God. Listen, what the scripture is clear about what there is no negotiation on is this idea that God is sovereign and we are responsible. He is sovereign and he does as he wishes and he's not affected by anything and he doesn't do anything that he doesn't want to do. Yet at the same time, we are responsible. We're responsible for our, our faithfulness to him and living out our faithfulness. We're responsible. God is sovereign over the city of Fort Worth. But can we take ownership and say, but we want to be responsible for it. That we want to see the 12th largest city in America come to, to faith and, and to bow on its knees and to call upon the name of Jesus. Yes, we believe that God can save them however he choose. But God has said, you, my people, will be responsible. That you have a commission and, and a task, and I've called you to that, and I want you to work unto that end. I want you to see people that are far from him come to know Christ. God is sovereign, and yet we are responsible. But the responsible way to look at our own culpability and God's sovereignty is that we must believe in our responsibility in a way that doesn't exclude God from being sovereign. We don't exclude him from being sovereign. 
that we've been invited in to live on mission with him and his sovereign purposes. And at the end of the day, the Bible says he wins. And he wins whether or not you or I join in with what he's doing and, and play a part and play a role. And so here's the beauty of the gospel for his people this morning. God's saying my kingdom will not be thwarted. I won't give it away, but here's what's gonna happen. You get to a personal invitation to come be on mission to be a part of his kingdom, to work alongside him as a co-laborer, and to come and partner and to, and to take the responsibility. And so we must believe in our responsibility in a way that doesn't exclude God from being sovereign, yet at the same time, we must affirm God's sovereignty without destroying our own responsibility. I've heard people getting the trap of this tension between sovereignty and responsibility. And if God is so sovereign, well, what's the point of anything then? It's a fair question to maybe ask in the very beginning, but the reality is, is what happens is God is sovereign and he is inviting us to live in, in his mission and to be faithful. And so when you ask the question, what's the point? Well, the answer to that question is because God commanded it and he said so. And he said, come be a part and, and be faithful and testify and tell people about the good works to do the things that he's saying in Exodus, that you would speak about them uh, amongst your sons and amongst your daughters. You would tell people what it is that I've done, not just for the Hebrews, but also what God has done in your own life. And his faithfulness on display in your families and, and in your homes, that, that you would testify to, to that faithfulness amongst your neighbors and your co-workers and, and your family members that are far from God. Would you tell people about how good he is and, and how kind and, and merciful he has been? The blessing of, of having children as a testimony to God's grace and, and that family's life. And then that family coming up and saying, we're going to raise and be the most countercultural families that exist. Why? Because we've chosen to raise our kids in the church, which is completely against what the culture would tell you to do. That the most countercultural thing that we can often do as believers is just show up and come to church. To be faithful in just the things that God has called us to. We don't have to be creative and we don't have to think outside the box. We just need to be faithful to the things that God has called us to do in the way in which he has told us we shall live. So in verse 3, the text keeps going, and he says, Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh, and they said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I'm going to bring locusts into your country. And this is not going to end well for you, Pharaoh. And they shall cover the face of the land so that no one will see the land. And they will eat what is left after the hail comes. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all of your servants and all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor grandfathers have ever seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and he went out from Pharaoh. You can just hear and feel and see the tension in this moment where Moses and Aaron come in. They lay the law down drop the mic, and they just walk off in silence. And then here's Pharaoh again, amongst his court with all the wisdom of the land, and they begin to approach Pharaoh very carefully and methodically. They say in verse 7, then Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? 
How long should he entangle us? How long shall he hold us captive, the most powerful country in the land? How long, Pharaoh, will we allow him to do this? You notice the, the craftiness and the cunningness of the question, because there's a repetition in verse 3 of this chapter, and the same question is asked by different people in verse 7. And what they're doing in this moment is they're, they're actually blaming Pharaoh for what he's doing, but they're putting fault onto Moses and Aaron. And they're saying, listen, if you would just listen to them and let them go worship like they're asking, then, then surely Moses is the snare. But what they're saying in this moment is, Pharaoh, you've become the snare amongst us. And so the text continues on and he says, so Moses and Aaron were brought back into Pharaoh in verse 8. And he said to them, go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses says this. We will go with our young and with our old. We will take our sons and we will take our daughters. We will gather our flocks. We will get our herds. We're going to hold a feast to the Lord. But then he says to them, the Lord be with you. If I ever let you and your little ones go, you must have some evil purpose in mind. No, go. The men among you and serve the Lord for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Now, Pharaoh could have responded in this way for a couple of different reasons. One in particular, because in Pharaoh's mind, women and children were often just seen as, as property, as slaves. And so when he says, just let the men go, let the men go. It could have been a fundamental understanding of what worship would have been like for the Hebrews in this moment, that the children and the women didn't participate and didn't conduct the, the ritual acts. And so go ahead, you men, just go and go worship your God. But what I find is interesting in this moment is that we see that Moses contends not just for the privilege of the men, but rather says, no, we will go with our whole family and we will worship our God. We will take our, our sons and our daughters. We will take the elderly amongst us. We will all go. And what Moses is doing in that moment is he is speaking about the dignity of humanity of all of life, male and female, old and young, and that all people made in his image ought to have the opportunity to worship and to be. And I think the principle that we take from this and understanding of this is the importance of worship in regards to the family. That husbands, we lead our spouses and worship in our homes and, and we read and we pray and, and we, we lead our kids and we teach our kids. But oftentimes what happens when you read verses like Deuteronomy 6 that we read earlier or you see admonitions like this where Moses says, I'm taking them all in there. One of the things that we have to understand in particular as parents and even if you're a grandparent is this. You can have all the right truth and doctrine in the world. You can teach faithfully the scriptures, but the absence of a relationship with your grandkids, the absence of a meaningful relationship with your sons and, and with your daughters, all those rules, right, without the relationship, what it does is it breeds rebellion in the hearts of, of our teenagers. And sociologists are discovering this on a, on a large area when they ask the question, why do 18-year-olds leave the church? And, and there's a variety of reasons for this, but do you know the number one indicator that a high school student is going to stay with the church after graduation it is the relationship he has with his father? And the closeness and the nearness 
and the importance of, of mom and dad coming together and, and raising their kids up in, in that way. And having the right relationship with them so that when we speak about the right truth and the understanding that what it begins to do is it begins to cultivate in the heart of the child a desire for the things of God. I would even go so far as to say it this way, that the quality of the relationships with our kids is greater than the depths of our instruction. The relationship matters. The instruction deeply matters. But to have all the right instruction without the right relationship, it breeds rebellion in our hearts. You think back to when you were in school or when you had a, a coach, who your favorite teacher was or who your favorite coach was. They were oftentimes the, the teachers who, who had the great content and the understanding and the mastery of the curriculum that existed there, but you loved that teacher not just because they made teaching fun and, and learning fun, but because you had a relationship with that teacher and you knew that that teacher cared for you. That coach, whatever your favorite sport was or team was, they had all the right information, but it was matched and it was mirrored with a loving relationship that existed there. And so they inevitably became your favorite because they had the right instruction and they also had the relationship. Verse 12 goes on, it says, and the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land so the locusts can come and so that they may come upon the land and eat. Notice what he says, every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So these, you, you can imagine the reason why that phrase is there is because you have these dead carcasses that died because of the hailstorm. These livestock that were left out in the field to, to rot and to decay and to, to, to decompose. And so here they are amongst the stench and yet Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. And so Moses stretches out his hand, and then notice what it says in verse 13. <clears throat> when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts, indicating this, this divine wind change that something supernatural was happening. And the locusts, verse 14, came up all over the land of Egypt, and they settled on the whole country. A dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land. There were so many locusts that the sky turned black and it darkened and they ate all the plants and all the fruit of the trees and all that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained. Neither tree nor plant nor field throughout all the land of Egypt. Locusts are interesting little insects. They only weigh about two grams on average. Now, growing up in East Texas, going out to my uh, mama and papa's house, they lived out in East Texas, and we'd go out into these hay fields, and you would have these grasshoppers that, that looked like just monsters. And, and they'd be there, and you'd sometimes get in the midst of all these things, and growing up, we'd try to catch them, put them in our pockets, and bring them back inside, and turn them loose in the house, and do all the things that you're not supposed to do, but you want to make your mom uh, sort of put her on edge. But the funny thing about locusts is they may only weigh two grams, but in order for a locust, in order for, uh, in order for, for this to actually uh, make its weight, they, they eat their body weight every day. So you can imagine, let's just say you're a, you're a, a buck 50, 150 pounds or 180 pounds or whatever it is that you weigh, but in order for you to be sustained for the next day, you have to eat your weight in pounds per day in order to live. Listen, there are not big enough pews and sanctuaries in this country to accommodate any of that. 
And you think a, a little harmless grasshopper just for a moment couldn't really do much until you've actually seen swarms of, of grasshoppers. Uh, guys who study uh, locusts like this, for instance, uh, in these moments, what they do is they said that they've caught them to be as dense. If you had a 10 foot by 10 foot by 10 foot square, that you could fit literally in the midst of that, you could put millions of, of these little bugs inside that square. And we know that in the 1920s and the 1930s, Africa was, was left utterly destroyed and, and was sent into famine because of these plagues of, of locusts that, that existed. Locusts that swept across uh, the continent of Africa and wiped out 5 million square miles, an area approximately double the size of the United States. Completely just destroyed everything. You imagine waking up in the morning and, and you have no shrubs and, and trees, all of your crepe myrtles that are in bloom right now and your rose bushes that are starting to bud, they're just completely gone. No grass to, to sit on, nothing to feed your animals with. It would put you immediately in the context of famine. And so what God was doing is he utterly destroys what he created back in Genesis 1. But he also does it to undermine the, the plethora of gods that the Egyptian culture worshipped. Gods such as the god Men, who was the god of the crops, or the god Isis, who the goddess of life, who what she would do is she would prepare flax seeds, and they would fashion clothing out of these seeds, and that was her primary responsibility, or the god Nepri, who was the god of grain, or Anubis, the guardian of the field, or Senehem, the divine protector of pests. And so what God is doing in the midst of this is he is supernaturally demonstrating his dominion and his authority. He's showing his sovereignty, all these little gods that they would come down to their altar and light a candle and sing a song to and raise their hands up to these gods that didn't even exist. And he's saying, I am the Lord, your God. There is no other God but me. Verse 16, it says, Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron. He says, I have sinned against the Lord your God. And I've sinned against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please. Only this once. And, and would you, Moses, Aaron, would you plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me? So he went out from Pharaoh and he pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, changing direction again. And it lifted up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. And not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. And so we see that God creates something, and then he destroys it in Exodus. But one of the things that I find the most striking this past week is you sort of look at the biblical imagery that exists and the themes that exist and tie all of the different books together in different ways. And, and clearly this was a judgment of God on the Egyptian people. But did you know this, regardless of what your eschatology or end times theory actually is, you know that one day he's going to bring the locust back. And in a horrifying and terrifying scene, one of the most horrific in all of scripture, I want you to see this imagery that exists in Revelation 9, because this time when they come back, they're not destroying crops and shrubs and trees and taking down your crepe myrtles and your rose bushes. Instead, this time it's going to be used to take the lives of other people. It says in Revelation 9, verse 3, it says, Then the smoke came from the locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. 
And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or the green plant of any tree. So all those things stay. But only those people, listen to this, only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. For they were allowed to torment them for five months, but they weren't permitted to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone over and over and over and over again. In those days, people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Now, I've never been bitten by a scorpion. I've stepped on one and, and been near one. But my sophomore year of college, I was bitten by a, a spider that was quite poisonous. And at first, what I thought was maybe just an ingrown hair, it turned into this infection and got really sort of gnarly on my leg, and it began to change different colors and do different things that I won't describe and, and uh, uh, mar the sacredness of, of this pulpit. But it, it put me down for, for well over a week to the point where I couldn't bend my right leg and I could barely stand up and walk because it got infected. And I was a, a sophomore and I was as healthy as you could be, had no existing problems or anything. You imagine the repetition of that sting over the course of months and months and months. Why? Who does this happen to? Well, he simply just says these people whose names are, are not written in the Lamb's book of life they do not have the seal of God on their forehead. And so here's my challenge to you this morning. We live in the 12th largest city in the country. Lostness is everywhere around us. God has put you strategically in your neighborhood, where you live, your address, wherever that is, in an apartment complex, uh, somewhere in Crowley or, or Alito, wherever it is that God has, has put you. He has put you there for a reason and for a purpose. And the reason and the purpose is, is so that one day your neighbors, one day every person in this city, every person in the uttermost parts of the world, every tribe, nation, and tongue, one day, the hope would be that they would call upon the name of the Lord. And you see, God is sovereign and he can save anyone that he wants to, but he has said, you are going to be responsible. You will be the one that will be my mouthpiece. You will be the one that is my hands and, and you are my feet. Go therefore and be on mission with me. And live a life not extraordinary in the eyes of the world, but, but live a life that is extraordinary, almost simplistic in how obedient it is and just faithful it is in following what God has instructed his people to follow in his word, to just be faithful and go and tell someone. This is our mission, to see people that are far from him come to know Christ. Would you join me in that mission today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins, a death that we were not capable of, of dying to accomplish what it is that he has accomplished for, our, for us and on our behalf. And so, Father, we know that as we grow in Christ-likeness, as we seek to mature to be like you, Father, I pray that you would help us grow downward in a spiral of humility, not up. So, Father, would you help us grow close to you and to humble ourselves, to not be like Pharaoh who needed to be humbled, or can we just be a people that testifies of what you've already done and how great you are? 
And so, Father, I pray that you would capture our hearts in this time of response, that your spirit would move amongst us as we seek to exalt your son, Jesus, and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. For we pray these things in his name and God's people said.